welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict, author, visionary, dreamweaver. In this episode, we're continuing our discussion about the perils of fandom with Tim Heiderich, author of Misunderstanding Comics and co-host of Have You Seen This, a podcast about obscure and misbegotten cinema. Let's take a moment to talk about parasocial relationships yes. and how they relate to fandom. Uh, do we want to define parasocial relationships? or? Uh, do you want to take a crack at that or should I? I'm Well, maybe you should. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> Is that okay? Or it, Hey, can I throw out my $10 word of simulacra again? Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, it is something that is, you know, masquerading as an actual relationship without really being one. It is the, um, it is the waitress at Hooters that rubs your back when she brings you your bill, <laughs> like you not realizing, like she's paid to do this exact thing, like she isn't your friend. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a one-sided relationship. It is like, oh, I don't know, um... Uh, people listening to podcasts and thinking that the podcasters, because they're accessible, are like your friends. Right. Yeah. It's the relationship between a boy band and their fans. Yeah. Like, to the fans, this is my boyfriend. Right. Kind of. I mean, they don't literally believe that he's their boyfriend, but he kind of fulfills that emotional role of, like, a safe boy to to obsess over and, and... pour all of these weird adolescent horniness feelings into and yeah and and but it's he's not really your boyfriend he's some famous guy who's paid to sing and dance and look pretty yeah and yours a girl and he wants you to buy tickets to his concerts and he wants you to buy his music and and posters and merchandise but there's this weird fake pretend relationship between them yeah it's kind of a a dry run of an actual relationship it's it's all these signifiers are there without the you know authentic core right the the reason for the relationship actually missing two people having some kind of connection but yeah all the all the signifiers are there in that you know there there's like proximity and um you just uh familiarity despite it being completely disingenuous right and it's particularly a big thing now in the era of like twitch streamers and youtube stars and social media stars in that there's less of a filter between you and the person you admire like you can chat live with your favorite twitch streamer you can leave comments on your favorite youtube channel and the person might respond to those comments and it can kind you can message them back and forth and like pay to be in their discord server like yeah like get a, our get a shout uh, out listeners can do that get on our discord server that's how you can suggest uh, episode ideas yeah <laughs> and you know there's this higher level of access and back and forth but but it is paid access ultimately yeah it's paid and it's still not a real friendship yeah like a real friendship is an organic give and take on an equal playing field. It isn't one person paying to have access to the other person. That is, like, you're basically a John to this person now. Yeah. <laughs> like, and really, the um, the adage that I go by is like, if she's paid to be there, she's not into you. Like that's <laughs> that, that I think is like the best way to to keep it real. So yeah, and and yeah, like. Speaking of, you know, fandom and access and, like, this parasocial relationship, 
I had you know saw a study somewhere about how uh, the format of a lot of YouTube videos and a lot of like YouTube reaction videos and things like that is to form that false one-on-one relationship of saying, hey, oh, right. yeah, it's me, the YouTuber, talking directly to you, where I mean from... Oh, hey, guys, sorry I haven't talked to you in a while. Yeah, and like... So many of them start with that. And so many of the format of those things are like people hanging out. And at first it's like... Why would you want to watch a couple of dipshits hanging out? Like, why not watch some, you know, you could go watch The Godfather or something. But it's like, oh, this is a friendship simulator. Yeah, yeah. I can pretend that I'm hanging out with cool people. Yeah. Playing video games with my bros. Yeah, like, stripped of all content or, or context, it like, a FaceTime call or, like, a video chat is indistinguishable from a YouTube video. And um, I... I talked to this with a friend of mine and and he came up with a a a brilliant summary of it which is you know i because i couldn't understand the appeal myself and he just put it so succinctly people are bored and lonely yeah (laughs) it's like that's all you have to say about it like why would anyone want to pretend that they're hanging out with a person who does not know their name does not care what's going on in their life does not know what's going on in their life this is not like a level playing playing field egalitarian friendship. This is a a one directional you know, simulation of a friendship, and it's like, why would anyone engage with that? It's like, well, people are bored right. and lonely, right? And it's especially telling that that sort of thing is so big among young people. Who, I mean, as as difficult as it is sometimes to make friends as an adult, as an adult, if I want to leave my apartment and go talk to people, I can do that. Yeah. A 12-year-old can't. Yeah. Like, maybe you live in a place where you need to drive somewhere, and you're 12, you don't have a driver's license, or maybe you you have to ask your parents for permission, and they won't let you. Yeah. I don't have to do that. I could leave my apartment. I choose not to, because I'm not a cool person. <laughs> but the ability is there. Yeah, I can go out and, there. And so if you're a kid, you know, especially with the way things are, kids' lives are so, like, controlled and, and scheduled to death by their parents, like... That's I. That is the substitute for friendship because mom won't let me fucking go outside. Right. Yeah. Or you know you're afraid to let kids out on their own because you know some kid could have read a Stephen King book and want to shoot up the school now. Yeah. So. So instead they watch some Twitch streamer who plays video games while pushing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So <laughs> that's cool. Hey, that, that's good. That was just a heated really gamer good that moment. We're doing that yeah. instead. <laughs> It's a, a, a heated game, gamer moment. Heated gamer moment, you know, yeah. shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't scream racial slurs while playing video yeah, games? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, does I, everyone do that? That's super normal. Yeah, I accidentally I read the Cliff's Notes of Mein Kampf. Yeah, it wasn't a... <laughs> and, and someone had a funny thing about that uh, that was, I think it was, you know, a lot of uh, PewDiePie's fans were, were normal then, like all the white supremacists came in and kind of ruin it for everyone else but uh i think it was someone on twitter who made the point it's like yeah okay sure they all came in but um yeah then they stayed like right it wasn't a repudiation of their you know values that caused them to be like well you know fuck this liberal douchebag is like no yeah you you can say they were perfectly comfortable there yeah and so it really makes you wonder yeah, like other other creators, if you want to, I don't know if you want to call PewDiePie a creator, but other mm-hmm. media people don't do that. Like, um, well, you can say celebrity. Well, for instance, Rammstein found that 
they had a lot of like weird neo-nazi fans because it's like okay we're hard rock we sing in german a lot of like dumb americans thought that we're nazis yeah yeah. so their response was to make the man gegen man video which is just basically like softcore gay porn (laughs) where the members of the band are just rolling around in a pile of like semi naked muscular dudes which it's also like a mixed race crowd and they're like yeah no (laughs) we're not for you we're not for you nazis uh yeah Rammstein, they are they're great at trolling. <laughs> like it's just because you know they they ride that line of like playing within you know like the sort of metal tropes, but then also they'll just completely explode them. Be like, yeah, what's more metal than like showing you something that makes you just really uncomfortable, especially if you're a fucking Nazi? Be like, yeah, here's something awful that you're gonna hate. So. Hey, Nazis, we're making a song about how being gay is really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck off. That's great. It's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, and the the crazy thing, too, is it's like, yeah, I remember when they burst on the scene fucking 20 years ago. And it's like, how did did that happen? Where did the time go? Yeah, Jesus. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, A friend of a friend is an adult entertainer and she was involved in one of their videos and like the behind the scenes stuff that she was talking about was just like utterly fearless from them oh wow yeah and it's it's just it's really interesting to just think about like what sort of things they were improving and what sort of things like they obviously couldn't put into the video but yeah just Mm. like it really is it it's really uh, heartening to just see and you know understand just the limit that they're willing to go for you know the the art that they do and it's like that's that's pretty badass so yeah i gotta respect that yeah 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 anyway so um, yeah so don't be a nazi (laughs) listen to ramstein don't be a nazi yeah listen to ramstein yeah they're great (laughs) and anyway uh going back to parasocial relationships i in fandom i've noticed a shift from parasocial relationships with the actors or writers or directors or artists who make the thing we like Mm -hmm. and a shift toward these parasocial relationships with the product itself or even the industry or the corporation that creates it like k-pop stands who support the k-pop industry even as it like really kind of chews up and abuses the pop stars they like or Disney stands, which it's it's a corporation, you guys. I understand, like, you know, liking the movies. But when you're saying, oh, I love Disney, the corporate entity, that's kind of weird. Yeah, that's a very hail corporate attitude. And the, um, yeah, the K-pop situation is very much a gilded cage where it's, right. it's, yeah, you think that it is this jet setter lifestyle of, you know, basically living the dream of being a... Um, you know, a singer or a dancer or, you know, some kind of musical entertainer, but just the short leash that they keep them on, it's... Yeah, like, they're not even allowed to admit they have a boyfriend or girlfriend in public, like... Yeah, that is taking a cultivated image to a just pathological degree. Yeah, and they have... I, I understand appearance requirements, but they're incredibly strict to the point where, like, so many of these people end up getting a fucking eating disorder, like, really horrible ideas about the way they look and it's heartbreaking because it's like man you're young you're like 15 and you're 90 pounds and you think you're too fat what the fuck yeah the thing too that i wonder about it is you know, given all this control over you know, because so much of this is about control like 
given the control right. over that person's image and you know how they're expressing themselves even in in their social life and on social media uh, there's a point where i have to ask is this necessary i mean because yeah. there have been plenty of legitimate unpolished artists who have made a great impact and been a huge right. success without being without being so confined and right the 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 thing that i think so much of this gets it gets down to is that if you're a you know k-pop producer then you have a very particular idea of how th- how you want things to go and to leave that up to chance is you know to get into like some 1984 shit the the notion of do you want to abdicate absolute control over over, over culture over society or, you know or what mm. what have you and i feel like it is very progressive to be like let 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 the cards you know fall as they may let let things work out the way they are going to best work out but right the the problem of it is that so much of it is we have a lot of money invested in this and we can't leave it this up to chance you know that's why we don't have the auteur notion in uh filmmaking like we did in the 70s in the 70s it was we will give money to this director and they will come back with the best movie they think they can make. Right. But that then turned into a studio system where it's like, well, we have some notes because this is our money and we aren't going to risk it on whatever you think is right. We're going to go with what the metrics tell us is right. And the problem is then it just completely muddles the the creative process so that you, you aren't getting authentic risky art like you're really cutting up both ends of the bell curve here like you're you're making sure that you don't get garbage content but at the cost of never risking brilliant content either yeah yeah and and it's heartbreaking too because i mean they'll employ some really really talented people and then not give them any creative freedom like the guy who i forget his name the director of black panther was not allowed to direct his own action sequences yeah. <laughs> he just wasn't allowed to do that. Like, why do you fucking hire this guy to do this movie then if you don't trust him to do the action sequences? Yeah, and, and I uh, went to a Q&A of, I also don't remember his name either, but the guy who directed the uh, John Wick movies. And he that, hmm. guy is a, that guy is a sight to behold because he has like zero self-doubt in anything he does. And I'm like, like how, did, how do you get some of that? But um, he talks about directing fight scenes in his movies because he says... Like if you aren't directing the fight scenes, you're no longer the director. Like mm-hmm. you're you're the curator, but it's the fight choreographer who's directing your movies now. And if you don't mm. take an active role in every creative decision in your movie, then you aren't a creative. You're a curator. You're letting mm. other people do the work, and then you say, yeah, yeah, that's good. But you know, if you're Disney producing Black Panther, you're like, we can't leave this leave to chance what the director's going to do. We, yeah. we, you know, we got to make sure that things are done the right way. You know, the Disney way. It is. It's like comic artists conforming to a house style. It's like, yeah, yeah. you are a brilliant artist, and you can make you know so many imaginative, creative works. But this is what Wolverine looks like. This is how you draw Batman. And yeah, that is the sort of devil's bargain that you're making because you are working within a system. You're saying I abdicate a portion of my autonomy to work with what the system allows me to work with. It's how you get a seat at the table, basically. 
its fealty to this established power structure saying, we want this to look like a Marvel movie. We want this to be a Disney movie. I appreciate that you're a competent director, but the buck stops here, basically. Yeah, yeah. And there is something kind of horrifying just to see fans being okay with that. It's like... It's, it's like this line from Invader Zim, like, I love you, cold, unfeeling robot arm. <laughs> it's just like, that. that's not, this is a committee now. Like, you're in love with a brand. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, like, the, the Disney thing in particular, like, I really don't get, because, I mean, since, you know, I was a cynical teenager, like, I felt like I saw, you know, Disney for what it is, and... And yeah, I just, I truly don't understand how people get get sucked into that, but it's like, they are good at what they do, yes, but there's this level of, to, to borrow a, a term from wrestling that I've only ever seen in print, so I'm probably mispronouncing kayfabe. Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the idea basically that you never break character, and I've dealt with, you mm-hmm. know, I've interacted with people at galaxy's edge at disneyland and you know people who are huge disney fans and people who work for disney but are also like actors or dancers in you know other work and yeah it is that notion of fully committing to a role that i don't know it just it gets inside people's heads to the point where it it is living that fantasy and again, it is commendable if you're like a method actor or, you know, you're getting into character for work, but then to never drop character is to live in a fantasy. And there's got to be a name for people who can't differentiate between fantasy and reality. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I get that Disney is good at what they, what it, what they do, but like with the K-pop thing of just this absolute micromanaging control of of you know like the the pop stars lives like do you do you need to buy in so wholly into the like the disney lifestyle like do you need to be a true believer for disney to be successful and and then it gets into other economic issues like how do we define success by disney because i work for a department that there was a core number of uh, full-time employees, AKA blue badges, and there were Mm. a bunch of contract uh, workers, AKA green badges. Green badges got none of the benefits, um, you know, like things to the park and like 401ks and, you know, other stuff like that. Mm. But they're the ones doing the bulk of the work. They're just disposable contract workers. And to, divorce one's fandom from that reality of this being how disney magic is produced is it right. really takes some it, it involves some cognitive dissonance because you're saying like disney is great and produces you know all this great tv and magic but at the cost of you have a director who can't direct his own movies and you have employees that aren't worth paying basic benefits to in order to make sure that the lights stay on it's like how is that yeah. how is that ethical how is that magical how is that justifiable yeah so not a huge fan of disney (laughs) one of my biggest complaints about them purely as a creative is their the way they've killed the public domain oh yeah like things used to enter the public domain after what very very short period of time 
like 15, 20 years, you'd create something, you'd have 15, 20 years to make money off it, and then bam, it's public domain, the copyright expires, and that's that. And now the copyright will never expire. So the rest of the culture isn't really able to take some new creation and mold it and change it and synthesize it and riff on it. Now it is solely owned by this entity that did not create it. The people who created I don't know, Mickey Mouse, are dead. Yeah. They've been dead for a long time. Yeah. But it's still property, and it's never going to be able to change or grow organically. Yeah. And I find that idea very disturbing. Yeah, because it, <laughs> yeah, because it is creating ossified culture in the, the way yeah. that ideas aren't allowed to die, yeah. to, to, to die and become immortal in the public domain. Like... Star Wars, going back to that example, like that is something that could have came and went like so many other things, but the people who happened to own it owned an enormous cash cow and they never want to like lose control of that. As long as they can wring one red cent from that, they are never right. going to let that go because they have invested in a particular successful franchise and to throw a caution to the wind and say, this thing has had its day, let's try something new. I think that is that is antithetical to the, the business-minded nature of an entertainment corporation. And it gets into you know, some of the 1984 ethos again, which is, uh, this is in the middle of the book where, uh, what, what's his name, where, he's, where it, the, the middle of the book, which basically turns into like a lecture on the uh, backstory mm-hmm. of the, the world of 1984, which is, I forget who the antagonist is, is it? But Winston's hearing from him and he's saying, like, whoever, what, you know, whatever government or whatever controlling entity that they had, in one way or another, ultimately lost control of its uh, of its populace. Every empire rose and then declined. But the goal of the government in 1984 is to make sure that they never reach that period of decline. They just want to remain in this ossified state of saying today is was it a uh, like that nine inch nails song every day is exactly the same like yeah like no highs no lows no change it's just you're gonna watch a new star wars movie every year until you know the day you die these uh disney movies that came out in the 90s are the only disney movies that you're ever gonna watch or ever know about they're the only archetypes you're ever gonna be aware of and it is going to always be like that we will try and introduce new stuff, but this is our bread and butter, Is the, are the things that are proven successes. And we're just going to keep rolling with those until the heat death of the universe. Right. Yeah. So, And it also means that other people don't get a chance to, to riff on them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it means that other people are never going to get to take the Lion King and say, well, what if I want to tell my own Lion King? What if I want to do something different with the Lion King. Yeah, what if I like, want to remix that into something? Yeah. Or what if I yeah. want to update it for you know, more contemporary ideas or concerns, which is why a lot of, I think, narrative in um, mainstream media is not is out of step with modern, I think, concerns or modern um, anxieties. Right. So. This tight, tight, tight control. Yeah. So, and it, the tough thing is... If you're, if you happen to have backed a winner and come up with a thing that is the most popular franchise in you know the last several decades, 
like no one is going to willingly surrender that and of course yeah it, and it was such a case as there was a time when these things did naturally fall into the public domain and become the property of everybody but again with that same you know 1984 mentality it was the people who came before who allowed things to fall out of their control they're the ones who basically failed and we aren't going to make that same mistake and it is right. and it is very much a thing that I see a lot that is, I feel unacknowledged in capitalism is that a lot of industries are based on things that are basically given for free. That, yeah, yeah where it's like all of the, uh, like if you think of any popular Disney movies, those are based on public domain, like Grimm's fairy tales or, you know, the Arabian Nights or anything like that. Like it right. is something that was acquired for nothing, and then turned into money. Right. Or like Amazon's business model makes heavy use of the U.S. Postal Service, this public good. Yeah, yeah. And then doesn't fucking pay taxes to support it. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, yeah, it is what, uh, privatized profits, socialized losses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or like all the, uh, you know, metric and user data that social media mines from us, that is, like, we aren't compensated from that. It is simply taken from us and turned into profit for someone else. Right. Yeah, and it's always been that case. I mean, even going back to like the gold rush, like that is gold that was ore that was just sitting there. It wasn't owned by anyone. The claim was sold. And then like if it, if you found anything from it, that was sold, but it was the sort of thing that was just there for the taking and so much of it and access to those lands existed because of the U.S. military right. driving out the original inhabitants. It wasn't just like, oh, here's this land that's just there and there's no one living here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, there was someone living there. It's just, you know, westward settlers, white settlers got to go there because the U.S. military sent people in to kill or chase away yeah. the original inhabitants. So it's like, cool, now you can go there with a shovel and, and dig some gold after... This publicly funded yeah. genocide yeah. made it available to you. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it was. You know, public in the most broad sense. It's like then we found a way to sell to acquire the land and sell that. It's something that we didn't own. We took, and then from yeah. that we and were able to sell so people could turn a profit from that. But yeah, every every instance of it is basically it starts with theft, which is yeah, which is unconscionable. <laughs> Or a public giveaway of like the internet, you know, that was a yeah. that was a government thing. Or I think some of the older moving to the UK sort of council houses. Yeah, this was originally. I, I my understanding is limited because I'm an American and I don't know what other countries are. But this was originally sort of this public housing initiative that was pretty much given to older generations and now these are the same older generations who don't want to give a fucking thing to younger poor people and they want to sort of get price gouge everybody for rent yeah so it's yeah it, it in so many cases and disney is by far no exception but it is yeah, yeah it's it's finding something that cost nothing to acquire and then selling it <laughs> and just like that right. that is an epic level con <laughs> like yeah yeah so and then making it impossible for anyone else to sell it. No one's ever going to be able to sell Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah. Whenever it's about to enter public domain, they lobby again and, and get the public domain, the copyright expiration pushed back another 10, yeah. 15, 20 years. Every time. It will never enter the public domain. Yeah. So, so don't feel bad about pirating a movie. 
<laughs> Don't feel bad about pirating a movie where all the people who made it are dead. Yeah, yeah, for real. None of the creators are profiting off of this. It's obscene. Yeah, and you know, on top of it, too, like, you aren't taking money out of the pocket of the, uh, you know, like, the assistant makeup. Like, they got paid their day rate, and then they went on their way. Like, they don't get a piece of that movie. You could make a billion dollars, or it could flop. They got paid all the same. So. They got an hourly wage and probably yeah. some snacks. So. From the craft service table, hope they got some good snacks. We've talked about fandom's negative effects on the fan. What about the effects on the objects of worship? Can fandom harm the thing it loves by negatively influencing a creator's work? For instance, I'm thinking about death threats that writers get for killing off a beloved character or making too radical a change. We, we could bring up a little bit Alan Moore's horror at what's been done to his work by fanboys like Zack Snyder and dudes who think that Rorschach is the good guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, do is it possible for fandom to sort of influence the creator to make less creative yeah that decisions. is a that is a tough one because it's you know like we were saying earlier it how much of that how much of the fan response do you want to take on board as a creator like do you want to say like right. i'm writing this book according to what my values and ideas are and i'm just going to keep on keeping on because in some ways that kind of then you become like this kind of out of touch weirdo where people are like who are they even writing for anymore but you know, taken to the other extreme, it right. is yeah, like you're you're basically writing by committee, where you're saying, hey, would you like it more if A happened or B happened? And if unless you're writing choose your own adventures, that isn't a that isn't a sustainable uh, creative model. Yeah. And the the funny thing about that is, like I have I have a writer friend who turns out romance novels on uh, you know for the Kindle. And you know she's got a a pretty mm. successful uh, like franchise going, and she she talks about how when she started it was you know, she was she started as an author. She's like, I'm going to put a lot of work and thought into this creative piece, and it did okay. Mm. And then she said, okay, I'm going to learn what all the uh, what all the like tricks and tropes and rules are and everything that you know as as a writer like you have to know like you must know all the like like inside jargon names for all these different things about like what what different right. points and different turns are in a story oh right 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 and if you're right depending on certain genres there's you can follow an incredibly strict plot structure of here's where the twist goes and here's where the the yeah. other guy goes you know like here's a ver- here's the formula yeah, to the follow formula. and romance writing romance isn't really the thing i do so it's not super f- familiar to me but i'm sure here is the romance novel formula yeah like there each genre has its tropes i'm sure yeah oh, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. once she started writing to that formula the things became much easier and the the thing that struck me most about it is that she says readers never notice. Like you, you put in a hmm. twist at a certain point and it always hits because people like, like what I had mentioned earlier about songs hitting all the right notes. 
this is a song that hits all those notes that people are expecting and and yeah like the um the content of it changes but the form doesn't and she's been able to follow this formula for however many years she's been at it and it works so the the difficult thing in that you know for someone who considers themselves a legitimate artist is that there's this path of least resistance where you say, oh, I can just follow what the established expectations are and I can be successful in this particular genre. But you know, were it me in that situation, I would say it, it, it's like the um, what Truman Capote said, that's not writing, that's typing. Yeah. Right. So you, you have to ask yourself, like, am I an artist or am I simply filling in the blanks? Am I, am I churning right. out machine produced uh are you making big macs here are yeah you making fast food kind of to invoke 1984 again like there's that automated genre content right. for the proles right there was a, a machine that made pop songs yeah yeah so in a way like we are we are those machines if we're if we're only working according to a formula how are we any different from an automated process like if a rule can if a process can be defined by rules, it can be automated. Right. I felt that so hard. I used to work for a website where I was basically making clickbait, and we were just ruled yeah. by SEO. And when you're typing it in WordPress, there's this little widget that, like, it turns green when your SEO score is good. <laughs> and it's just like, I'm putting words in a box until the light goes green. Yeah. I'm like a fuck. I'm like I'm in a Skinner <laughs> box or something. It's like, good, good rat. Yeah, you got the you cheese. Yeah, that green light. You used this phrase enough. That's good. Hit publish. And I'm like, fuck, my name is on this. God yeah. damn. So it's, and again, this all comes back to me. For for me, this all comes back to agency in that are you writing according to a formula? Are you making formulaic art? And if you're making formulaic art, then you have to ask yourself, you know, whose formula am I obeying and why? And furthermore, what is outside mm-hmm. that formula and what's outside that formula possibly better? So, yeah, so right. I, I feel like so much of right. fandom is, right. you know, like I said, conservative in ideology in that it's saying I want things to be the way that I know them to work. If I know that things work this way, let's just keep doing that. And to change that invites uncertainty and uncertainty is scary right. in so many ways. For so many reasons. Right. I want a PB&J. I don't want a Cuban sandwich. I don't want pulled pork. I don't yeah. want poke. I don't I don't want pad thai. I, I want a PB&J. That's what I want. I want that every day. And I yeah. want Yeah, or like, like feeding day. a little kid. It's like, what do you, do you want chicken wings or chicken wings? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I want tendies. <laughs> yeah. How about some broccoli? Yeah. No! Just the notion that like... I want some tendies! That like, this is what... We're out of dinosaur shapes. Will you accept the smiley shape? Yeah. No! It's got to be dinosaurs! <laughs> that a, a uh, consumer of cuisine or culture can have their palate so de- degenerated to the point where, yeah, the, like I just want this basic thing that I know what I'm going to get, and it's bland, but it hits all the right notes, and I am content with that right. because I don't know what else there is. right. right. And, and I do get that sometimes that mm-hmm. is what you want. Like, I will totally sometimes watch, like, 
yeah, I don't care what this is. Like, I'll totally watch fucking Lifetime original yeah. movies. They're just the most formulaic, total nonsense. And But you know what? That's what I watch at the gym because I don't want to watch cable <laughs> news. I will watch a Hallmark movie about Melissa Joan Hart falling in love with a nutcracker who's been turned into a man. <laughs> that is what I want. I will accept that. Yeah. But, like, it's distressing when that's all there is and that's all people have and that's all that creatives are encouraged to make. Yeah, if I can return to that metaphor of the bell curve of saying we aren't going to work outside one standard deviation, like everything gets a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is as good as we aspire to be because we don't want to risk falling right. on that like lower like 32% end. But everything falls right, within right. 32 to 68 and it's just it's that middle level of mediocrity that you gotta wonder what are you sacrificing for that stability so yeah now uh, let's uh switch from talking about the influence on the work and talk about the influence on the creators themselves we did touch on this with the the mm-hmm. k-pop discussion but the weird cults that surround creatives that can't be good for them <laughs> I know Pink Floyd dealt with this a lot in The Wall. Like, basically, it turns you into a fascist. Yeah. Like, there's a huge statement on fandom where just Pink Floyd just outright becomes, like, yeah. rock Hitler. And and he said it was based on a real incident. Like, he was performing or something, and the, fan was, the fans, the crowds were being yeah. their usual things, like, screaming, going, ah, I love you. And he just felt this visceral disgust yeah, for yeah. them. And he ended up spitting on a kid's yeah. face. And instead of being, like, angry, the kid in the audience was like, that's awesome, thanks, dude, this is cool. And he's like, what the fuck is this? What am I? What is yeah. I can't. No. And that's kind of where the wall came from, just that moment of him just spitting in a, yeah. in a kid, like some teenager's face and the teenager being thrilled and him going like, jeez, this... This is bad. This yeah, there's, is not there's okay. a point where, you know, Raj had to walk off stage and just, like, collect himself and be like did i just fucking spit in someone's face like is this the kind of guy i am now because because like hearing hearing him talk and also going through so much of his lyrics like i definitely empathize with you know his worldview like there's stuff on dark side of the moon which you know i don't need to sell Mm -hmm. anyone on that album but like there's stuff on that and in the wall that is just like it it is a it it is a, a a gut punch just to like the the way that he is expressing these ideas that are really so personal. Yes, so personal, yeah, and just like so so cutting and painful that I I mean I really appreciate that album to the level that I can't even listen to it anymore. Yeah, I think for men especially, the wall has particular resonance. Like I I mean I can enjoy it, but I think it touches to this level of emotional isolation that is way more relevant to the experiences of men Yeah. than to women. Not that women don't end up lonely or isolated, but the deliberately building a wall around yourself and becoming like this fascist monster, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like... I'm, <laughs> yeah, that is modern man. Yeah, it's like, there I'm going to put up a wall to never be hurt again for whatever antecedents that caused this feeling. And... Yeah, and the thing that I love right. so much about the wall too is that it is ultimately self-referential. 
because by the time you get to the end of it, like you're listening to the album that is the result, it is the culmination of the concepts presented in the album. And yeah, just that it all comes back around. Like even, you know, you can look this uh, factor it up on, on Wikipedia. Like there's a, um, there's a, a statement at the beginning and the end of the album that is cut in half where it's, it's him saying, is this where we came in? And it is it is the first half of that statement at the end of the album and the second half of it at the at the beginning so it is an album that when you get to the end of it you've understood the album enough to begin listening to it Mm. it's yeah it's just it's this brilliant like erroborous concept and and yeah the idea too that you can become so isolated in your in your career as as a rock star to then sort of lose your essential humanity about what brought you here and what was meaningful about this role where where the the lifestyle has supplanted the authenticity that merited this level of success to the point where it's like yeah he 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 goes from this tortured artist into this like he metamorphoses into this fascist and like there is that that moment in the movie where you know he undergoes this kind of cocoon stage and then he emerges as you know that fascist pink and yeah it is him going through that feeling of just like him not being himself anymore that is thematically tied with him like the actual roger waters spitting that fan's face is you know the pink character becoming this this fascist rock star where it's like i'm not even this guy anymore like i've just i've fucked up my life enough and i've lost all the people that love me to the point where look i'm just i don't fucking care anymore i'm gonna be an asshole and fuck you too yeah 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 and then the amazing thing about that is that he then gets through that and he's like i can't be this person anymore right but i but i am gonna tell you how i became this person and how i got through it right right yeah just that's fucking phenomenal album but again like you you don't need me to tell that tell you that (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh god it's just it's just amazing it's amazing to the point i can't even listen to it anymore i get i just get choked up thinking about it wow yeah because it's so like emotionally visceral it's amazing yeah yeah and and particularly coming from, i mean he went to british boarding school this is a man raised in a society that is deliberately designed to kill any kind of honest oh, emotional yeah expression and to just completely stomp out any kind of genuine softness or poetry or beauty or or emotional honesty i mean there's the boarding school scenes there's just i mean the meat grinder metaphor is very straightforward and there's just also that scene that you know is directly lifted from his childhood of He's just sitting yeah. in class writing poetry, and yeah. his instructor's like, "You're writing poetry, poems, everyone. Man. Yes, poems. Like, you know that definitely <laughs> happened to him." Yeah, new car caviar. <clears throat> like, oh, you're dealing with your feelings in a healthy, expressive way. Yeah, Fuck you. You're, we're all gonna mock you now. So take that, Roger, young Roger. Yeah, take that, you fucking ten-year-old right. child. Yeah, you fucking like, <laughs> yeah, goddamn child. Who treats a child that way? Literally a child. Like the whole process of boarding school, like, oh, you're eight to 10 years old. We're going to take you away from your family and put you in a rigidly hierarchical institution based on human cruelty. Yeah. (laughs) This is a good way to Uh, run the country. And to think that they exported that. Well, so. Yeah, Jesus uh, 
Oh, I wonder why so many of them end up pedophiles. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder know. if there's any influence. I don't, I don't know. Uh, just, just, yeah, I just want to steal that innocence from someone else. Yeah, innocence. I used to have that. I'm going to take it. Yeah. <laughs> I need to steal your innocence now, yeah. And on and on. Oh, God. Now, there's also uh, the the opposite side of that is like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's Pink who got kind of turned into a fascist. The opposite side is that weird negative fandom where it's like part of the creator's total dissolution is part of the entertainment like i'm thinking of amy winehouse around the end where it's like Mm. oh look at her she just had another nervous breakdown in public it's great it's so entertaining laughing at britney spears with a shaved head yeah like (laughs) she's having a nervous breakdown isn't that funny like not really yeah that's that's not good yeah, and it, it does speak to the Pink Floyd sense of isolation because, uh, and I forget who else this applied to, but, you know, Britney's a great example of just no one being able to understand, like, that level of, I think, pressure right. that the that the pop star is under. And that's a thing, too, that... Um, when everybody called her fat for being, like, what, 125 pounds or something at the Music yeah. Video Awards? Like, Jesus Christ, Oh, uh, the pig. Yeah. Look at or her. Like, she yeah. looks cute. She looks fine. Oh, it's fatty. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, or, like, Lady Gaga at the Super Bowl, or like, showing a bit of her midriff, and someone's like, ah, oh, she's really chubby. And it's like, no, that's that's a normal woman's body. That's what a human looks like. Yeah. Yeah, like, the, the sense of, like, it's... It's almost like an impossible situation for a normal person to relate to because yeah. for someone who's never had that level of success, you think, well, you know, this has got to be all, you know, sunshine and rainbows. I watched the Katy Perry documentary as a goof. Huh. I don't remember why. But um, someone pointed out to me like how they found the ending really affecting because it takes a turn about her marriage, I guess, with Russell Brand breaking right. down. Um I don't know how the two of them got married in the first place, but she is just like, she is on the level of like a nervous breakdown, but still has a job to perform. And there's someone like, there's some part at the end of her, like getting ready to start a show. And like, she's just so like racked with anxiety over like her failing marriage and her life falling apart that she's like dry heaving into this bucket. And then finally she just composes herself and, you know, she like turns to the guy who's running the platform and like gives him the nod and she plasters on a smile and up she goes and starts Jeez. the show. Jeez. And it's like that's what you sign up for, I guess. Yeah, I I don't I don't think I'd like that. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'd like that. That wouldn't feel good. I don't think I could do that. I'm I'm not yeah. great at pretending that shit's okay. Right, right. That's well, why I yeah. write hard. <laughs> Yep. You'll never afford a Murcielago with, uh, you know, that idea, with that attitude. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure I, I'm sure I butchered that Lamborghini name, but... Oh, that's okay. Never going to see one anyway. We're not rich enough to know how to pronounce that word. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a crazy amount of pressure, and this isn't even on the fans. This, is just, this just seems like the nature of the work. Right. And it's a, it's a devil's bargain in a way. Yeah, but like, in a way, I mean, that is part of the fandom is is that. Like, there was this great true. piece in electric literature that wrote about the recent Judy Garland biopic, and they said, well, Judy Garland had good fans and bad fans, and there were the fans who just kind of loved her singing, and then there were the bad fans who loved the train wreck, too. 
Mm. And like that, it was kind of this cruel schadenfreude bit of entertainment. And after a certain point, it's like, is it moral to still want and to be entertained by this person who should probably be in rehab right now? Yeah. Like I remember when Scott Weiland of Stone Temple Pilots died, his wife mm-hmm. left this, wrote this heartbreaking op-ed or essay in, in, I think, Rolling Stone. And she said, this wasn't the day he died. He died a long time ago. This was the last day that he could be propped up in front of a microphone for an audience to extract money from people's pockets. Oof. And just basically about how people are going to write these retrospectives on his life, glamorizing this rock star party guy lifestyle and romanticizing it. And there's nothing fucking romantic about trying to find a way to explain to your daughter that her father didn't make it to her to her school recital because he was on heroin. Like there's no fucking romantic. There's nothing romantic about trying to get your husband to sober up because it's his weekend to see his daughter and you want your daughter to have a relationship with her father. But holy fuck, he is on something that he shouldn't be on right now. Yeah, there's so many other like pressing factors that after a, a certain point, you can't push back against them. Then you kind of become, and this is a metaphor that I use a lot to describe um, Taylor Swift to some of my friends is that the, the pop star themselves is sort of like the, like the mermaid on the prow of the ship. That is great. Yeah. Cause it's like, it isn't just them. Like they are the visible attractive part that it attracts your attention, but there's so much more going on behind the scenes and in a way, like they have as much say over the direction of the ship as, or they have, you know, like no say in it. Because yeah, there's so much more going on behind the scenes of just anonymous people that are steering this. And all you're meant to see is the flashy thing up front. Right. So, but in that way, like it it shows that they're really just, you know, part of a, part of a team and in a way kind of an object within that team like they are a product being sold that just also happens to be a living human being who you know feels love and is love but also has these insane obligations right anyway we've been talking about mermaids at the prow of a ship the ship of late stage capitalism perhaps yeah which brings us to my next topic is fandom a capitalist plot cat stop trying to eat my shirt stop it Okay. <laughs> now, th- since I write in, in sci-fi and, and fantasy, I hear this common narrative. And here's the common narrative. Mm. Back in the day, geeks were the downtrodden kids in high school, bullied and abused for their interests. But now geek culture is mainstream. Movies are all about superheroes or aliens or wizards, and everybody plays video games. And so these get downtrodden geeks have won. As the narrative goes, the downtrodden geeks have won. But there's another side to this, which is that geek fandom is very profitable. Geeks spend a lot of money on toys and t-shirts and Funko Pops to show their fandom. So corporations have a big incentive to push geeky media and to breed geeky fandom. Like Nightcrawler of the X-Men is going to sell more toys than Nightcrawler, the sociopathic Jake Gyllenhaal character who deftly exploits our profit-driven news media's addiction to lowest common denominator, blood and guts. So did fandom arise organically out of sincere love of geeky media, or are fans just sort of pawns in the hands of our capitalist overlords? 
<laughs> I, I think I think that there was initially, and this might be my own na- naivete, but I think that there was initially some validity behind the secondary signifiers of fandom being like collectibles and you know magazines and stuff like that. But I think that it became one of those things that once it was realized to be an exploitable resource, then that all like the valid reasons for a thing existing in the first place got sidelined in place of how do we make money off of this and how can we game the system so yeah if you want to if you want to describe fans as pawns then yeah marketing is the game that they're playing which is it which is owners of intellectual property saying how can we expand you know the market for this which is how you get things in like mcu of you know, how you get like, you know, Black Panther or how you get like a Wonder Woman movie or like Batwoman or something, which is to say we are or, you know, even like um, Pride Month, you get companies, you know, providing a rainbow logo and they're like, hey, you know, right. Gay money spends just as good as everyone else's. Yep. Superman makes a vague statement about inclusion. Yeah. But and it's like still nobody's actually o- openly gay. Right? Yeah. J.K. Rowling <laughs> declares yet another character was gay, although it did not happen in the books and will not happen in the movies that yeah. she's still making. She made a movie with young Dumbledore and young whatever the fuck Johnny Depp's character was. <laughs> the character, she like retconned them as gay. They were not gay in the movie. Yeah. Because God forbid we risk some of our fucking profit. Yeah, someone <laughs> might, might have a problem with that. We don't love the gays that much. Yeah, and in that level, it's all kind of glad-handing, and it's saying, you know, whether you are a black person with money who wants to go to a movie, or a woman with money who wants to go to a movie, or a lesbian with money who wants to watch, you know, a show on the CW, these companies are more than happy to provide content as a way to, you know, expand their their media offerings to a wider audience. It isn't that. We want to tell stories that are authentic to these particular communities. It is a way to say we want our existing properties to expand into those communities, and it is just the you know, them further expanding their domain. You know, spreading their tentacles insidiously into other realms that were heretofore on the quote-unquote margins, but they're saying, hey. We don't, we don't want you to be marginalized. We want you to be part of our empire, part of our community. Right. right. And there's something insidious about that, too, in that instead of these communities telling their own stories, yeah, it's, oh, well, we'll just take this really crappy representation from Marvel as opposed to women writing their stories about like, yeah. actual women's lives and not, oh, here's a super-powered ubermensch who's a lady. Yeah, yeah, it's like, huh? Is that that's that's enough for you, right? That's that 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 speaks to you as a woman, right? That's yeah. I identify with that. If we recontextualize what the range of being the range of what is considered being a woman to something that can be defined by an existing property, I know like I'm I'm leaning really heavily on 1984, but it is kind of newspeak in a way. In that it is saying, as long as you can express yourself using the words that we provide you, right? then, yeah, you're free to express yourself however you want. 
You can say you identify with either Captain Marvel or you identify with uh, Wonder Woman more. But those are your choices. <laughs> and it's just like, and that's it. So, and, and this gets back to something that I saw in uh, in neoliberalism in the last election in like 2016 or so. The, the notion of even the... You know, like the liberal democratic... Which of Jeffrey Epstein's friends do you want to vote for? Right. Yeah. It, the the idea that we're reaching out to marginalized communities. You know, we don't care if you're, if you're you know, a person of color or if you're, you know, a woman or if you're transsexual or anything like that. As long as you support us, we're cool with you. But it's like, that's kind of the cart before the horse. And it, it was kind of the, the problem of, you know, Hillary's campaign, the notion of, like, I'm with her. And it's like, no, she's with us. Like, you forget what the power dynamic is supposed to be. Yeah, it kind of took the idea of a fandom. Yeah. It took the template of a fandom, except the fandom wasn't there. Well, that's that's probably the biggest problem of it. But, yeah, just the notion that, like, you're a civil servant and you're supposed to support us. But it was more about... Um, Let's wish ha- happy birthday to this future president. Uh, Let's write I, her a birthday card. Like, I, cr- I cringe so much at that, yeah. Like, it was assuming that this fandom was already there, and, and as opposed to trying to win people over. Yeah, yeah. And it really gets more into the idea of um, we are interested in having... Uh, traditionally marginalized groups supporting our platform because we want the support of those marginalized groups not we want to support those marginalized groups right we want to include them in our little pyramid scheme but it's just it it's it just rings so false that of course people didn't respond to that and that's how hillary lost her second election yeah i mean well you know first she lost to obama then she really lost to trump and yeah yeah, and it's again that same notion of like you know we want you to come and work for us and it's like no like you're the civil servant and you support our communities not us falling in line with us being being your your water carrier basically yeah yeah because because so much of it is yeah the, the idea that you are sublimating your own agency in support of something that is bigger than yourself which i i i think really does a disservice to the um the human condition right so yeah whether it's fandom i know that took a a political bend there but yeah but yeah like i think that it's it's the same it's the same forces at work here it is saying we have an established franchise that we need your support to perpetuate at the cost of you the individual yeah yeah and honestly that is how a lot of sort of politics does seem to work like there's here's the this fandom here's the that fandom here's the trump fandom here's the yeah here's the kamala harris fandom and it's like about being part of this fandom and not so much about okay what what are my actual interests here yeah, yeah. What are the things that benefit me rather than me just being a part of something that I of which I am a small cog? And it's like there are enough people who are small cogs and things as it is. Like yeah. we don't need to cultivate that any further than we already have. Yeah, yeah. So let's look onward and talk about alternatives to fandom. Now mm. that we've definitively proven that fandom is terrible. 
<laughs> what are some better ways to engage with media, to engage with culture? Yeah, to, to your point, I mean, I just want to reiterate the idea that don't be someone else's water carrier. Like you, and I am speaking directly to you, the listener, like you are worth more than that. The question is, like, who do you work for? Like, who's really in charge here? Like, are you like a fan or, or like an addict? Or like, are you, are you sublimating your own agency to something uh, bigger than yourself? And if so, for what? Like, I, I think that a, a fan can and should expect to outgrow what they like. I mean, you know, I'm not obviously not a religious person, but there is that passage about I uh, once thought as a child and then there was a time where I put away childish things. Right. And I do believe that that comes to everyone. If you like the same things in your 40s that you liked in your teens, I've, I want to say that there's something wrong there mm-hmm. because it shows that your life is, is stagnating. And what the market forces are behind that are, are uncertain to me. I believe that it could be economically due to a, the creation of a sort of generational underclass. I mean, look right. at the, the wealth of like boomers versus Generation X and millennials. And you can see how it isn't just wage slavery perpetuating the cycle, but it is a generation born into bondage. And that this culture may just be a reflection of that notion that later generations aren't allowed their own agency. They aren't allowed to be complete people. They are only allowed to be supporters of things larger than themselves because they themselves are never allowed to be significant, which I think is just absolutely fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. So I I think that Initially, fandom was a, an awareness of culture, and that existed on its own merits. But at some point, you know, exhaustive awareness of culture you know, has like supplanted the understanding of that culture. Uh, like to put it more simply, it's like knowing a lot about a topic versus understanding it. And I think that if there isn't any incentive to increase understanding about media or media criticism it is only about interfacing with entertainment on the most you know shallow reactionary level Mm. but you know it's it's more important to see the man behind the curtain and understand the ways in which you're being manipulated and to ask yourself what is it that fandom is asking of me right and and wondering if that is a thing that you are prepared to give up in service of entertainment right it's a complex issue and there are a lot of angles to it which i think we have discussed exhaustively but yeah yeah i think that as as a fan and this is something that again like in misunderstanding comics and in my day-to-day life in as a fan of so many different kinds of media i mean i have to ask myself what are the things what are the creative things that i'm giving up in service of being a fan in fan service i guess and Mm -hmm. is that like which is which is the thing that is more valuable to you and for some people being a fan is enough i don't want to denigrate that because not everyone has the same kind of drives or motivations and for some people being you know super into something is gives their life meaning i think that being super into something and knowing all the minutiae about it isn't the same as having 
a a a deep nuanced understanding of it and that as a fan is important is something that's important to express like i mean i feel like of of course tooting my own own horn i think that you know my explanation of why the wall resonates for me is an example of positive fandom and i think that if there are people who can express and introspect about what is meaningful to them about fandom and then be able to apply that to enriching their life then great but if it's just arguments about who would win in a fight <laughs> maybe that isn't the best use of your your one life that you're given basically right <laughs> not to get too heavy in conclusion fandom is a land of contrasts <laughs> i think we we finally solved the issue of fandom i think that's it i think that's our thesis yeah all right before we go anything you'd like to talk about anything you'd like to plug well, um, you can get uh, all this and more it, you know, deep uh, media criticism from the Have You Seen This podcast. Uh, we're HYST Pod on Twitter. Uh, our website is haveyouseen.us. Um, we have a Patreon. So if you just look up, you know, Have You Seen This, uh, we're on there. And for a scant $2 a month, uh, we do a couple of episodes every month highlighting you know, obscure and misbegotten cinema. Um, trying to expand you know, our listeners' awareness of, of uh, different media and hoping to enrich their understanding of it. I was the writer of the Misunderstanding Comics satire. It's available on uh, Comixology. It's on Amazon, um, but we prefer you buy it directly from us at misunderstandingcomics.com. I am personally sealing the envelope and mailing those out. Other than that, yeah, I got a defunct website at timtoon.com. You want to see uh, some animation that I did several years ago that um, you know Nickelodeon was a fan of. Uh, Mike Judge liked it, uh, won some awards, and then I uh, dropped it. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood, that's R-I-T-E-G-U-D, and sign up. Subscribers get bonus episodes on topics like Franz Kafka and Cabaret, access to our Discord server, and mastery over the four elements. Join us next time when we talk about scams and swindlers in the publishing world. Until then, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict, Hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color.